Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the only and the sure link between heaven and earth, the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are here, Lord, by the purchasing power of Christ's blood to bring our car from point A to point B. Grace alone provides us safe passage, even physically as we drive in this fallen world. But farther, infinitely more more important, and testifying infinitely more so to the power of your blood to save, will be our transportation from this life to glory. We're celebrating that today as the assembly of the beloved, drawn together, unified in the saving, the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ, now celebrating our redemption, and also committing ourselves one to another, covenanting to continue to live in light of our salvation, to walk in a manner worthy of our call, to promote, to witness, to testify, to share, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, discipling the nations and advancing the crown rights, the King of the universe, Jesus Christ. I pray that this service would call our attention to practical ways to make that possible, Lord, that we learn from your word, but also that you would visit us today with your Holy Spirit, the only power by which we are in good standing with you and the blood of Christ is applied to the doorposts of our heart and the only power we have to continue in a lifestyle of sanctification, worshiping and glorifying you by a life of obedience and sacrifice for our ruling and reigning and conquering King. And it's in that name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege to join together this morning on a number of accounts. This is the first of the 2014, hopefully of many, baby dedications in this little fellowship here at Providence Community Church Cross Lake. That's testimony to the grace of God in and of itself. At the end of this service, four brand new little ladies will be dedicated today. Uh, That's just unbelievable to me that God would be so gracious to give parents, including myself, children. And while I don't join them today, I have joined them five times previously and will join them soon with another baby on the way and The other uh, families that are expecting are looking forward to our next baby dedication as well. So that's a brief history of the the, uh, parenting within the body here, just to bring you up to speed. Today's message, I think, is apropos to the occasion. The title of today's uh, sermon is Covenantal Succession. Covenantal Succession. The word succession just means continuing on the same terms. If you think of a kingdom... If you think of a king succeeded by his son, that's one example of a covenantal succession. You remember in the scriptures, the record in the kings and the chronicles in the Old Testament, and oftentimes whether it's a dynasty or a family like uh, the patriarchs in Genesis and so on, in the Old Testament there's these records of succession, covenantal succession. And the Bible's brutally honest. In some cases we see a record where there's a successful succession of the terms of the covenant, and then there's other times in the biblical record where we see distinct 
failures in that regard. The question I want to field to you today and answer hopefully from Scripture is, is there a call for covenantal succession within the community of the body of Christ today? While we aren't kings as David was on the throne, hopefully with a worthy son to succeed us in ruling and reigning, and while we aren't patriarchs in the same way Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in the Old Testament, nevertheless, do we see a pattern in Scripture? I think we do. The New Testament verse that sticks out most prominently to me in this regard comes in Acts 2.39, where the promise is given to this whole crowd who had just come to the awareness of the life-saving work of Jesus Christ that this promise was to them and their children and as many as the Lord our God shall call. And you see, between in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there's no real change in the language God uses to describe our relationship with Him, and our relationship to each other. There's certain things that are fulfilled in Christ and manifestly so, but there's a certain continuity as well, which leads me to think that there is a real uh, message from the Old Testament and the New of covenantal succession that we're called to be faithful to, particularly as it relates to the application on this Sunday, believing parents. Believing parents, this is to say, have an obligation to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They have the obligation as well as the promise and expectation that God is predisposed to provide grace through that vehicle or that means that they, when they lift up the name of Jesus Christ within their home, can expect that in due time, God will graciously, mercifully, and miraculously apply that gospel preaching to the heart of their children. So later today, this service will be a commitment made by four fathers representing four families to do exactly that. And the implication in this gathering is that there's an accountability framework here. They're vowing before God and before you to raise their children in the gospel. And I submit to you that in this vision of covenantal succession, perhaps is one application that is so needed and really in the dire straits that we find ourselves in related to family issues and cultural issues today, perhaps a biblical view of covenantal succession could awaken the church in a mighty revival. And I do believe that is the case. I'd like to give you a quote in introducing the body of my text and commentary today from D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson was quoted as saying, The first generation has the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. The third generation loses the gospel. It's a cultural observation among the church and the body of Christ of late. D.A. Carson has seen with many others, demographers included, That there's a generation oftentimes who stands on the gospel, but it seems statistically far less likely that their children will also stand on that same firm footing and give it generation three. And invariably, the vast majority of that lineage will have fallen away from the faith if today's cultural conditions are any standard. This message really is a response to that observation. I'm not saying that observation isn't true. I'm saying that observation doesn't have to be true. I submit to you and will endeavor to show from Scripture 
that the Word of God and the principles therein contained are the primary missing ingredient. Perhaps this term, the message I'm giving you today, covenantal succession, is the primary missing ingredient or the generational framework of covenant is lost on us today, on many believers today. And perhaps that is why it is statistically undeniable that so many children are leaving the faith. The sentence that I wrote down in this regard is that in our history of late, primarily because the church has despised the generational framework of covenant, we see this whole-scale apostasy. But as believers, whether parents or not, ours is undeniably a pedagogical calling in Christ Jesus. That word pedagogical means we're called to teach. When Jesus, of course, commissioned His disciples at the close of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 28, there's a call to go and to teach. That calling is never more clear as far as it extends to the particular persons than within the covenant of marriage. That is, the great commission applied within the context of families that parents are to go and make disciples of their children. And if they use God's Word and the opportunities available, they will have the best opportunity to do so. Far greater opportunity, perhaps by some measures, than those who will go cold into the missionary field among people who have been blinded by a life and a lifestyle of sin, trying to introduce Jesus Christ for the very first time. You, mom and dad, with new little children, have the opportunity to introduce Jesus Christ for the very first time among the very first words that you teach your child. And I submit to you, if you are obedient to the biblical calling of covenantal succession, and if you are mindful of the generational framework of covenant that we see in the Scriptures, that these are sufficient means for us to train our children in the Gospel, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, as Ephesians tells us. I'll give you a heading for several points. In stark contrast to the humanistic existentialism that so pervades us culturally today, True covenantal succession is the following. So that would be your heading. True covenantal succession is, number one, it is rooted in the nature of God. Number two, true covenantal succession is the fruit of faithful worship. Number three, covenantal succession is the biblical purpose of education. Number four, it is covenantal succession, the biblical substance of of patriotism. And number five, true covenantal succession is fulfilled and amplified in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's begin in opening in Exodus chapter 3. While you're turning there, for your information, hopefully it'll be helpful in following, just stick close with me as we go through quite a bit of Scripture this morning. But today's message is an overview message. I'm seeking to establish covenantal succession as a pattern in Scripture by identifying points in the Scriptures where it's prominent. And so we're going to cover a little bit more territory than usual. But I hope that it will be useful to you. Number one, true covenantal succession is rooted in the nature and character of God. We find this to be the case in Exodus 3, where God reveals Himself in this divine self-disclosure to Moses at His calling. 
And he does this in this glorious passage. And I'm wondering if my reference points are wrong here. Actually, in verse 3, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the burning bush is not, is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, That is, God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And it continues. Then picking up a little later on in the verses that I mentioned, verses 13 and following, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And notice again this generational component. God says, I am the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And I am the one, the God of these generations, who is going before you and sending you to these people. He says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You see here that this generational component is rooted in the very nature and character of God. God is not a momentary event in our lives that dawns on us all of the sudden, at least as far as his his nature and being are concerned. Though it is often our experience that we have an awakening to the reality of God's existence, the truth is God has existed long before you were aware. And in fact, for eternity before you were aware. And although oftentimes we seek the Lord in our prayer closet and we ask God to bless our family and we're very concerned with our immediate families and generations' needs, it nevertheless is true that if God had not answered the prayers of the generation that preceded you and the generation that preceded that one and so on, as far back as you can imagine, that you would not be here today. You see, this covenantal succession is rooted in the very nature of God. God is transgenerational. God is not defined as the worldview of the current existing generation. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is not a concept that changes with the popular mindset of the culture around us. God is firm and fixed and immutable in the heavens. And God's standards and righteousness never change. God transcends the generations. God transcends time. And His very nature is a nature described to us as a God who is best understood as not just your God, but the God of your parents if they were believers, and your parents' parents, and so on. The God who blesses through means 
of multi-generational faithfulness. God is ontologically transgenerational. That means the order of His being is it transcends our own experience. Now this is in some ways beyond our understanding, but it must be affirmed in order for us to have a sort of fear and reverence before Him. And I think when I realize and you realize that it is God's providence and sovereignty that has given you a little child to raise or welcomed you as a child of God into His kingdom, when you realize that, the humility that those meditations foster will do far more to equip you for parenting than more than half, if not the gross lion's share of parenting self-help books on the shelves today, including the Christian bookstore. Faith for your kids' faithfulness is not in your parenting. Faith for your kids' parent for your kids' faithfulness in the Lord is in the God that is generationally transcendent. If He could bring the gospel to your doorstep, He can bring it to the heart of your children. And He can equip even you to do so. A parent who may feel at this particular moment you don't understand a lot of the Scriptures. You don't have to understand everything. Simply fear Him. Simply pray for a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Simply pray for a humility and a submission to the God who transcends history, to the God who has sovereignly instituted covenantal succession, preserved the seed of the Messiah, the lineage of David, brought Jesus Christ onto the scene and always kept a remnant for His namesake and graciously provided you entrance to it by Christ's blood. Think along those terms and recognize that your means of parenting are rooted in the very nature of God. God is not only ontologically transgenerational, but God is transgenerationally revealed, known, and declared. A lot of times when we talk about knowing God, understanding God, or having a relationship with Him, we oftentimes limit that to a personal experience, something that I've felt or seen. And while that is substantial, and it must be the case, we can see from Scripture that God has revealed Himself in manifold ways, as the Scriptures say. God has revealed Himself through Jacob, through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. He's revealed himself as a covenant-keeping Lord with loving kindness extended to us. And so as we go through the pages of Scripture, we find that the genealogies, you know those long lists of names that you can't pronounce, are the time signature, if you will, of Scripture. Why does a book begin with the genealogy and then a significant change in the narrative is marked by that genealogy, and then picked up again. For instance, at the change of testaments when Jesus is born, the reason the lineage is listed in those cases is to show us that in the nature of God, He so transcends the here and now that we are dependent on His sovereignty for even being here today. And that's something that we, as frail, self-centered, selfish, and lying to ourselves that we're autonomous human beings, need to be reminded of. The genealogies are a reminder of that on just about every turning point in Scripture. Covenantal succession is rooted in the nature of God. Number two, true covenantal succession is the fruit of faithful worship. Turn with me a few pages over to Exodus chapter 12. Talk about a moment of significance in the history of the people of God. This is the time of the Exodus. 
A moment so significant that in 12 verse 2 we read the following, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So the Hebrew calendar for this people that are called forth from slavery to be a promised people, a covenant people, and enter the promised land are told to mark their calendar by the significance of this moment. They were to mark the significance of their redemption from slavery in Egypt by other things as well. Verse 14, we read this, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. The feast that we're referring to, or the scriptures refer to here, is the feast of Passover which commemorates the power of God to deliver and foreshadows the delivering power of Jesus Christ to bring out His covenant people, you and me, from bondage and slavery of sin into the promised land of fellowship with Him and ultimately glory eternal. This theme of generations shows up time and again in these passages. Go down to verse 17. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And do you see here among the covenant people of the Old Testament that if there was not a generational component, a covenantal succession, that that would be testimony to their disobedience? That if it did not continue, they were not obeying the voice of the Lord? God didn't just say celebrate the Passover. He said to do it throughout your generations. There were people there who would soon die. How could they be sure that this feast would be practiced or celebrated after them? That really is the question. Verse 24, we continue to read in the section. Again, this imperative. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads in worship. You see here in the context of this significant moment in all of redemptive history, and certainly the Hebrew history, as they were about to embark on the exodus from Egypt to the promised land, That covenantal succession was written into the constitution of this people. That is, when God instituted their worship, the things that they were to do to congregate, the things that they were commanded to do and celebrate, when they would have feasting together the way we will later, it wasn't supposed to be a self-indulgent, self-centered, meaningless act like St. Patty's Day has become in Cross Lake. Forgive me for that example. But think about all the examples in culture of our celebrations and feasting. Do we pause and consider the mighty works of the architect of history on those days? No. I submit to you now that we celebrate everything that required St. Patrick to go to Ireland in the first place. Now we're fascinated by luck and leprechauns. Now we're just reveling in drunkenness and debauchery and celebrating it by cheap beer steins and t-shirts and Mardi Gras beads. We need Jesus Christ again. We, where's, I wrote a blog this week, I haven't posted it yet, maybe it was just me venting, but my last phrase is, where is St. Patrick when Cross Lake needs him? Well, there was a purpose for feasting and for celebration and memorial occasions. I mean, they were joyful and they were meaningful. 
The two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They were to be enjoyed and to be celebrated, but they weren't to lose their substance and their meaning. And if they did, if the people went about a form of godliness, but denied its power, if they weren't mindful of the God that saved them, the God that bore them, Moses called this God the rock. He introduced that name for the Almighty and said, you must be mindful of the rock that bore you, that birthed you. Everyone who has been born and has their wits about them know that they owe it to their mother, their existence here, and ultimately to the Lord. And that's the message of the memorial feasts that are given in Scripture. And I'm here to tell you that if covenantal succession will be meaningfully practiced in our day and age, that it will be the fruit of faithful worship. When we worship the Lord, we know it's meaningful when it carries with it these principles. We bring our children, we teach our children, we instruct them, and we do things on a basis and a foundation that memorializes the day that God redeemed us from the slavery of sin and ransomed us from captivity and ushered us into the promised land. So, for instance, when we, in a Bible-believing church, partake in the sacraments like baptism and communion, and when our children say to us, what is the meaning of this? What are you going to say, mom and dad? Well, it's already written your words for you. You can move to your script here in Exodus twelve twenty-seven. You will say to them, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel when he struck the Egyptian, Egyptians by struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And all you have to do is substitute in that uh, phrase there, Egypt for sin, or, and the Egyptians for sin, and the Lord for Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary. The blood on the doorpost is the blood of the cross. The people realizing this, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. In the closing of this passage, verse 42, the record reads here, It was night, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generation. Now we're well aware, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, that things fell apart and relatively quickly. In Judges 2, you don't need to turn there necessarily, but let me read to you, this tragic account. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of their elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in that place there in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers And notice this last phrase, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There is no excuse for that phrase. God had given them every powerful and appropriate means. So that third generation, as D.A. Carson quote, or that quote by D.A. Carson illustrated, would not be apostate. But obviously, they had not fulfilled the vision for kind of covenantal succession by worshiping the Lord and considering teaching their children the fruit of faithful worship. When the people grew lax in this regard, what happened to the second and third generation? Well, they began to synthesize their understanding of God with the pagan idolatry around them. And make no mistake, we are susceptible to the same deception today. 
I recently came across a classic message, and I commend it to you. You can find it, do a Google search. You can find the audio. It's called Ten Shekels in a Shirt by Paris Rydhead, I think is his name. And this man recalled what's to most probably relatively obscure passage story in Judges 17 and 18 as this book continues. And this is a story of a priest named Micah. And the priest was wandering, and then he took refuge at a man's house. And the man had a few temple-like things, and he also had idols from the pagans around him. He said, hey, you're from the Levitical line. Why don't you be a priest for me? And he said, I'll give you ten shekels and a change of clothes. And so it was. He became a priest. Later that home was invaded by the tribe of Dan, and the priest went on to be a priest at Dan. They said, we'll give you a better contract. And the priest was quite content so long as he was earning a wage to syncretize, to mix, to water down, to pervert, and to compromise with the idolatry of that region as long as he was paid for it. And today I'm telling you the cocktail of choice is to mix the truth and knowledge and our, go- our calling for covenantal succession and committing to preaching and teaching the unadulterated scripture and gospel of Jesus Christ. Our cocktail of choice today is to do the very same thing. To mix a few things of God with the things of the world. Usually it's some form of momentary self-gratification that comes by way of Christian endorsement. Any number of things that cause us to stray from our calling to be faithful in our worship. Not to open the door to idolatry, but to celebrate and worship the Lord alone. True covenant succession is the fruit of faithful worship. This leads and bridges nicely, I think, to point number three. Deuteronomy gives further instructions after Exodus in this regard. Turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Here the parents are given even more specific instructions for covenantal succession. Point number three is true covenantal succession is the biblical purpose of education. Last baby dedication, I don't know if you recall, but I preached a message entitled, Revelation Mandates Education. That is, if Jesus Christ and the news of the gospel has visited your home, you have a mandate to educate. We call this the Great Commission, but when it's applied within the context of the home, it is an education mandate to teach the truth of God to your children. Revelation mandates education. Listen to the mandate coming forth in the context of the Hebrew covenant of old, Deuteronomy 11.1. 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Notice particular attention, verse 2. Consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, Consider the discipline of the Lord, His greatness, His mighty hand, and His outstretched arm, His signs, His deeds that He did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. And you see what's going on here is there will be a generation born who didn't see with their physical eyes the firestorm on Mount Sinai. They didn't hear with their physical ears the thunder and trumpet blast of the Lord of glory delivering a revelation of Himself to His people. So how would that generation be compelled to bow before that power manifestly revealed in the sensory experience of their parents? Well, the word of the Lord came and says, Since I am not speaking to you, to your children, who have not known and seen it, consider 
the discipline of your God, His greatness, His mighty hand, and His outstretched arm. So you see here, faithless to the feast, faithless to memorializing the work of God, faithless to elevating in their consciousness and in their teaching and instruction to their children, the glories of God revealed would be the means of covenantal succession. Since God had not chosen to reveal as spectacularly in each generation the same way as he did before, he instituted a responsibility to the parents to raise their children in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. Later he details this in verse 18 and following. He says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This is a comprehensive vision for instruction here. Verse 20 continues. You shall write them on the doorposts of of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. That is a weighty covenantal succession promise. That is, contingent on obedience in this regard, this generation did not have to worry that generation number three would fall away. If they would simply, comprehensively, dutifully, and fearfully, and obediently teach their children when they went out and came in, when they went by the way, when they woke up, when they lied down, then they could be assured that their children would remain in the covenant as long as the heavens are above the earth. And I submit to you the biblical purpose of education is covenantal succession. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why do we teach our children? Why do we teach our children? We make unbiblical and ungodly distinctions. Secular education, spiritual education. Do do we see any such distinction in Scripture? No. To submit your children to a program of education that does not honor and exalt God as a throne on the throne of all of history is to submit them to discipleship. One pastor is quoted as saying, we are called to disciple the nations, not send our children to be discipled by the nations. And I would submit to you that most education programs today, in as much as they principally, philosophically, deny the Lord of glory, the covenant-keeping God, the Alpha and Omega, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not. When we send our children into those areas, we're sending them to be discipled, but to be discipled by the nations. And here we have a vision for exactly the opposite to maintain jurisdiction over our children's soul and mind, to instruct them in the purposes that God has transgenerationally for them, their future, and their future children. And this is something that in the Old Testament, it's very clear, required, was contingent upon the duty of parents taking up the charge and mandate to educate their children. Who was the primary teacher? The parents Who is the primary textbook? What is the primary textbook? The law and word of God. Now there may be so that condemnation does not fall too heavy on some of us. I mean, we live in a time and an era where the ability to do this is limited. And that's partially due to the apostasy of previous generations who have not seen the importance of maintaining education under the lordship of Christ. 
So however long it takes for us to get back, and however many mistakes that any parent in this room may have taken in that regard, my intention in this message is to hold up the standard of righteousness true and clear. That if we are concerned about the future, we might repent according to that standard and ask the Lord to give us the means and the practical ability to do everything that we possibly can to be obedient to Deuteronomy 11. As far as the New Testament provides us the application of the same principle to teach our children comprehensively the undeniable and the indispensable truths of the covenant-keeping God of all of history. Number four, true covenantal succession is the biblical substance of patriotism. Uh, This may come as a curious line item in this message, but it's an interesting one and I think important. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. It may come as a surprise to some of us that it wasn't that Israel was never to have a king originally. It was only that the kingdom and the king and the order of their nation and their government must serve the purposes of covenantal succession. Otherwise, it would be illegitimate. And so we see in the examples that are given subsequent to this declaration a record of their faithfulness or their apostasy in that regard. Verse 14, When you come to the land that the Lord has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. In other words, the covenantal succession of godly rule, godly government in this society, was also contingent on the law and the word of God. Base your decisions, your thinking, your passions, your understanding, your education, your policies on the word that never changes. And so it will be a foundation for you as a people. Do not substitute for that foundation things the world says will give you influence, affluence, and power. Neither economic alliances, dubious relationships internationally, the acquisition of wealth, or running here and there and everywhere for security, well-being, and provision that is outside of what God says is a legitimate way to trust and believe that He will provide. Now, as we read that the true covenantal succession is the biblical substance of patriotism, we can judge our own experience in this nation accordingly and see that there are only so many things that really we can link our ultimate fealty and loyalty and allegiance to. And it really is the Word of God. 
And we need to demonstrate by example and contrast if we live in a nation and among a people who run to all these other things to ensure the future, that we stand and trust that Jesus Christ is our provider, that Jesus Christ is the one that gives us the groundwork for righteousness. He's the standard of justice, and His rule and reign is total, and His law code is immutable. And by that standard, one day everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will demonstrate our righteousness only when we plead the blood of Jesus to make us holy by His law-keeping power. But this standard of righteousness I'm referring to, I use this example to show that it's not just parenting, but it's whole people groups who owe their hope for the future, their grounding, their success, and their relative prosperity on the same foundation that you and I as Christian parents share. The nation whose God is the Lord will prosper, and the nation who substitutes anything else will fail. Solomon is the bipolar archetype for this passage, is he not? I say bipolar because in some ways he was an exemplary model, in other ways he failed miserably. But as you're thinking about the terms, conditions, and principles of covenantal succession, read the Proverbs and apply them in your home. That is a book written by a king, written to his son, And it's written to all because we have a leadership responsibility within the body of Christ, within the kingdom of God as parents to raise up vicegerents, if you will, to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And so we need to teach our sons. We need to teach our daughters that the beginning of knowledge and wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And the Proverbs are indispensable in that regard. Use them as your education textbook. And to show your kids what not to do, go to Ecclesiastes. Solomon, when he fell away from the Lord, he did committed all these sins that are listed right here. I mean, the guy was so wise, yet in the flesh was so stupid. He went to multiple marriages and everything else, acquisition of wealth and money and chariots and war machine and all of that, and he fell away from the Lord. And he began to make decisions not based on the word of God, but based on any and every other popular notion of the day. Biblical the biblical substance of patriotism, or you could say government, or order, or rule, and parenting is based on the Word of God. And a vision for true covenantal succession also is here within these examples. And final point this morning, true covenantal succession is fulfilled and amplified in Jesus Christ. At the end of the book or I'm sorry, of the Old Testament record in Malachi chapter 4, we have this prophecy which has family elements and prophetic messianic elements all wrapped into one, as well as the law of God. Chapter 4, verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And verse 6, this glorious promise the Old Testament closes with, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And we turn over 400 some years and just a few pages, and we read this prophecy, these words practically reiterated to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, following. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, 
and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And listen to this, verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And shortly after our Lord Jesus Christ was born and the ability that His Spirit now provides us when it resides in the blood-bought believer, not only is it a demonstration that Christ is the fulfillment of the covenantal succession of the Old Testament, but He amplifies our ability to be, <coughs> to be faithful. I can now, parents raising children in a wicked cultural atmosphere, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We continue to read throughout the New Testament and we see this messianic prophecy in context and then the delegated, uh, the delegated responsibility for us as emissaries of the gospel to continue in that pedagogical, that teaching, instructional, discipling role. And we see these pictures of spiritual and physical parenting throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 4 verses 14 through 17 you could highlight perhaps for future study. That's where a man who was not married called Timothy his son, Paul namely. And Paul also referred to other believers as his children. It was this awareness of the covenantal succession, the duty to make disciples that were understood as like children that moved Paul to the kind of commitment, unquestionable loyalty, uh, unconditional love, and understanding long-suffering, willingness to sacrifice and suffer, ultimately for his Lord Jesus Christ, but secondly, for those who he saw as his spiritual children. And I already read to you 1 John 2, verses 2 through 14, where the disciple and later apostle refers so affectionately to those that he's writing to as children and to son, as sons and daughters. And so this picture of family is helpful, is useful, and indispensable, I would argue, for us to be faithful to the covenantal succession vision for all of Scripture. Prefigured in the old, made possible and fulfilled in the new to vastly greater degree. If we are to make disciples for our Lord Jesus Christ, we must stand on our Lord Jesus Christ and take every possible opportunity to do it. There's an illustration I wanted to give to you Moving back to the quote that I opened this uh, message with, with, the first generation has the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, the third generation loses the gospel. And then asking the question, given that observational reality, is it because or could it be that because the church has lost the generational framework mandate and thorough and comprehensive application of our duty and great commission work that we see the second and third generation losing the faith. I'm hoping that my message here in this a brief overview from Scripture makes the case that if we restore this 
view of covenantal succession, our mandate to be obedient to it, that we might see a turnaround by God's grace in that regard. Think of this illustration in your mind. This last week I was reading an internet blog post and there was a photo of about six aircraft carriers lined up, I think five or six, basically the entire U.S. nuclear-powered aircraft carrier fleet was docked at the same port, Norfolk, New Jersey, for inspections and repairs. Now, for those who are uh, strategically savvy in, in warfare and so on, which would include my grandfather, who well knows that when Pearl Harbor was bombed, one of the reasons the casualties and the fallout was so great is because of the concentration of ships. There were these people that were irate saying, how in the world would you make such a strategic error like that to gather all of that fleet? Now one bomb can take out the entire power of the American empire, almost, is the idea there. Now there was a, perhaps a strategic error illustrated there. But translate that, if you will, into the kingdom of God. Could it be that we've concentrated all our efforts, all our hope, our faith, and zeal into one big thing too often and then neglected the faithfulness that we're called to have to our children in the home? In other words, in the church today, are we more likely to trust an expert, a personality, an experience, a geographical location, a television show, a book, a, a multi-step program, or any of these other things as the key? And so we congregate and fawn and gather and declare that we found an answer or a neat technical solution. And all the enemy has to do is one moral failure in that personality you know, one bomb, and then the whole church can suffer, many Christians can suffer shipwreck, as it were. Do you see, within the kingdom of God, if we follow the model to build our homes as many churches within the church, that this more decentralized model of kingdom of expansion, with you, if you will, is one that the, kingdom, that the gates of hell will not prevail against? Think about it. In communist China... In the past, now there's a thriving church there. I'm telling you, they didn't get to be a thriving church because a very powerful televangelist figurehead had a best-selling book. No, if he did, and if that was the means for kingdom growth, all it would take was one assassination and one book burning, and the church is dead in China. That's not the case. Why? Well, I submit to you that the substantial faith within the individual believer is probably far more boots on the ground probably far more meaningful within the home, probably far more likely to have regular family devotions. Fathers, I challenge you every evening or whenever is the time that you choose, open up the scriptures in your home. Let your children see them posted as it were on the doorposts of your schedule. Open the scriptures. Just read them. If you don't know anything to say other than God's word, that's fine. But that commitment and your zeal to regularly making the Word of God a chief fixture in your home, fathers, will be a decentralization, powerful force to advance the kingdom against the darkness. And I'm telling you, I think it is a key to reformation and revival. And so here today in this service, I hope that the commitment of the parents before us represents their their purpose and duty in that regard, but it also inspires the rest of us to not stray from our calling to make the Word of God central to our duty 
to disciple, to educate, to bring the gospel, not only to our own children, for even those of us who are past the childbearing years, to our spiritual children. As we recall in closing here, the metaphors of the kingdom of God listed in Matthew, think of them, salt, light, leaven, planted seeds. Those are small, faithful, little, yet exponentially powerful ways that the kingdom of God grows. Explore the implications of these pictures and God's wisdom in providing His biblical model for kingdom growth. This covenantal succession in Scripture, I believe, affirms Christ's historical authorship, His conquest, His legacy, God's predestination, His faithfulness, His sovereignty, the scriptural pattern. It is an enduring means of longevity, faithfulness, commitment, and covenant within the body of Christ. It incentivizes servitude, meekness, faith, humility, the crucifixion of the flesh, It does not sacrifice quality for quantity. It is a strategically decentralized way that we can advance the kingdom of God. And it is my contention in this message that biblical covenantal succession is the forgotten means that will exponentially and faithfully advance the kingdom of God in ways that we can only begin to imagine. Amen? Think about one more thought as we invite the parents to be ready to step up here. In the Old Testament, the covenantal succession preserved was the means of preservation for the seed of the Messiah. The covenantal succession in the Old Testament, the lineage, the remnant that was preserved, it was the vehicle messianic of preservation for the messianic seed. And today, I think a good way to imagine, to conceive, to think of covenantal succession within the family of God is a ministry or is a vehicle of Messiah seed cultivation. So when we raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we are cultivating the seed of truth and we are continuing the lineage of Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense that we see marked all the way through covenant history in this glorious book we've opened just briefly today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the outline that you've given us in your scriptures. I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, move us toward faithfulness to your commands, recognizing that it's grace alone that gives us the power to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the remaining 15 minutes or so we have here, I'd invite the uh, pairs to come forward. And since nobody was jumping forward to volunteer and I see Matthew reaching for something and Tim pointing to his left, I think we'll give him the privilege of going first. So Matthew and Leah and Eleonora, if our first family wants to come up, we could fire up this mic too. What I've asked the families to do, and they could share a testimony, whatever the Lord leads, but specifically the fathers to declare before us today their promise to raise their children in the nurture of him. Hello? Yeah. Um, hey, I'm going to just attempt to kind of give a kind of a brief, a short story of really the Lord's faithfulness um, to Leah and then us together as parents. And so um, it really kind of starts with Leah um, when she had her snowmobile accident about four years ago, a little over four years ago. 
Um, one of the things that really was injured was the midsection. And uh, there was intensive swelling, bleeding. And so it really uh, brought into question his ability to you know, get pregnant and carry children. And uh, as time went on, things regulated with that and it looked like it wasn't a huge concern, but just the fact that it wasn't really was the Lord. And then, uh, so, um, me and I met and obviously fell in love and, and uh, got married. Oh, I should say, before we got married, Leah actually, uh, her, her labrum, which was the main tendon, uh, supporting her hip, basically, and uh, pretty bad tear. And so then we got married, and we were kind of pursuing a way to get that fixed because we knew that with pregnancy it would be, well, we, didn't, we weren't sure whether we could get it fixed after she was pregnant. But in the meantime, we were obviously open to whatever God had with pregnancy, and both of us strongly desiring that and really wanting children so um, we kind of got conflicting stories as far as whether it was okay or not okay to get pregnant with that and well we found out we were pregnant and later found out they couldn't really do anything to repair Leah's hip during the process which was probably harder for Leah and realizing that much longer of not being fixed and she did have to definitely battle um, the pain and because of her hip it unaligned her back which brought in more things she had to deal with but so it was not an easy pregnancy but it definitely was I mean I believe God's hand through the whole process and obviously with her little baby girl here it's can't really deny that um, so yeah, and then with the pregnancy itself, because of, or the labor itself, because of these different um, pains that she was dealing with, we were very concerned with just the labor because of the hip and back. And obviously, labor in itself is a huge thing to go through. So that was kind of funny. The day before labor, I was pretty much thinking she was just sick and in denial with her frequent trips to the bathroom and everything that came with that. And uh, then she called me the next morning when I was working and said, water broke, we're going in. And really from that time on, I felt really on deep peace. And uh, I really felt the Lord's hand the whole day. And uh, yeah. Thankfully, the Lord blessed us with, with a good delivery, and it was a sigh of relief when everything was done, but really, we couldn't have asked for that to go better. I mean, obviously, it was hard, and Leah was in a lot of pain, but with everything that obviously could have gone wrong, and pregnancy and a delivery in itself is a big thing, and to add the other stuff on top of it was just really something we had to turn over to the Lord and, and trust him with.
So, um, yeah, we are so blessed with our little girl, and she's healthy and and beautiful, and um, obviously still keeping Leah in prayer because we do need some things for her, but um, very thankful for where God has us. So with the, the dedication, I was really excited. Um, obviously, I'm nervous now, but it is very important to me, and I'm honored that I get to stand before you today, and excited that we get to commit our little baby girl's life to the Lord and, and our lives as parents. And uh, yeah, I mean, even making our lives vulnerable to the church for correction when needed, it's to me is, I'm thankful that we have that. So, yeah. So, let's say a quick prayer and Lord, I just thank you for the blessing of our little girl, Eleonora. And I thank you for your faithfulness in our lives up to this point and everything you've done for us and bringing us together. And um, I thank you for everything you've done for us. And I just submit our lives to raising Eleonora in a God-fearing, Christ-honoring home. And just, yeah. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Thank you. All right. Next family, the Thompsons, the beautiful gals. Evan, Jenna, Maya, and Macy. Praise the Lord. We're growing family. Good morning. This is little Macy. We just want to say what a privilege it is to just stand before you guys, this congregation, and just uh, dedicate little Macy this morning. And uh, just, you guys have all just been such a such a blessing in our lives and just a just a good, just a good part of our lives and we just want to just declare before God and family and friends and you guys just our desire to uh just to raise little Macy to to know the Lord and just be held accountable to that so I'm just going to say a little prayer here for you Macy Heavenly Father we just we just love you so much and worship you this morning and God we just thank you for the blessing of of our little girl Macy Lord and just thank you for uh, just how amazing she is and just thank you that she's a healthy little girl Lord and we're just so blessed Lord we just pray that you would give us the strength and the knowledge Lord to 
just raise her to know you and the nurture and admonition of the Lord God. We know that can only come from you, Lord. So we pray that you would just give us the strength to do that. I pray that Macy would just know you at a young age, Father, and just dedicate her life to you and pray that she would just strive after you with with all that she is, Lord. God, we just thank you so much for her, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Joshua and Sharon and little Ruth in the house. Here they are. Praise God. Good morning. Uh, Josh and Sharon and uh, Ruth is our daughter. Um, yeah, I guess this, this last year we were, I mean, we were just married and we got pregnant right away with Ruth, and it was definitely uh, trying with all the changes in our life, you know, adjusting to being married. I got a new job at the time, and then right away finding out that um, we were pregnant and expecting a child, and it was just kind of like, wow, kind of got to get your act together quickly and get things figured out, and it's just been a year of um, really trusting God, and it's definitely taught me just to kind of let go a little bit, you know, it's I, I don't always see what's going to happen, you know, the, a week or two down the road or, you know, even longer than that all the time. And it's just, uh, you know, things come and things go, and God's always been faithful. So I just kind of hope that, um, that <laughs> well, I know that'll, that'll continue. But, uh, uh, yeah, I can't imagine a better community and a better family to raise our daughter in. I just uh, am very thankful that um, we have been blessed with that. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, I want to dedicate Ruth to raising her up in the ways that she should go to follow um, our God and Father. And so I can just say a quick prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for bringing us together today, Lord, and I thank you especially for um, all the children that you've provided our church with, God, and our, our family with. And um, I just pray, especially for Ruth right now, as um, she's getting older, I just pray that you would give um, us the wisdom to guide her in the ways that she should go and set a good example for her, God. And I just uh, um, want to make a commitment in front of you and in front of our church that we will do um, everything, everything we can, Lord, to um, give her a firm foundation to take a, a the right step for the rest of her life God and that uh, um, yeah we just trust you that you would uh, provide for her and um, continue to bless her in Jesus name amen all right Gina Marissa and Piper Rudy and Marley Good morning. Um, we just decided to share a little bit of our testimony, I guess, on how Piper came to be. And as I was praying last night for 
the Lord to give me the words to say. He did so at a quarter to six this morning. So it was just kind of all there in my mind until I got up and typed it out. Um, there are four things that come to mind as I stand here looking at Piper Joy. Restoration, God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness, and as I was reminded last night in a conversation with Ken, my dependency on the Lord. There are so many reasons by the world's standards that Piper shouldn't be here today. The first one being that when I was pregnant with our daughter Marley, my husband and I chose barrenness through him getting a vasectomy. We chose this out of fear. Several months later, the Lord placed deep conviction in our hearts that we had made a wrong decision. We then set out on the long journey of restoring what we thought we had control over. One year ago, this last November, we flew to Oklahoma and had a vasectomy reversal. By May, I was pregnant. This is restoration. God, by his grace, has restored our fertility and redeemed a bad decision that we had made. During that whole process of the reversal, we were also struck with a severe spiritual attack. Long story short, I sank into an extremely deep depression, which only the Lord could pull me out of. It was so severe that my husband and I had considered depression medication. Had we gone that route, it would not have been safe for me to get pregnant. Instead, the Lord showed me many things during that time and used the body of Christ that he had placed around me as his means of healing. This is sovereignty. The Lord has taught me that he is in complete control of absolutely every deta detail in my life and that he will deliver the afflicted. God is so faithful. His, promise, his promises are real and true, and he is exactly who he says he is. He is faithful even when we are not. I stand in awe at how God has blessed us in so many ways, even though we are so undeserving. Piper is another example of that. This is faithfulness. Lastly, I'm reminded of how dependent I am on God every time I look at Piper. Just like her, I can do nothing apart from Christ. I am weak, frail, and needy. I am fully dependent on him for absolutely everything. Even though during these past couple months of Piper's life there have been some difficult trials, I can and will rejoice that God will carry us through and not let me forget my dependency on him. This is dependency. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Isaiah 49, 15. I kind of had an idea of what I was going to say this morning, and the Lord led me in a different direction um, during worship, so I'm just going to go with that. But when we were singing um, just the line, bought by the precious blood of Christ, just I'm just in awe. And it just totally reminded me that Piper is not ours. Christ paid the price for her. He's hers. We're just stewards. And our commitment to this church and hope you guys will hold us accountable is our, our only job is just that she knows that, that she belongs to Christ and he's paid the price for her. And God willing, 
the Holy Spirit will convict her of her sin and lead her to repentance as she grows older. And We're just so grateful for this church. And uh, If you just join me for prayer, please. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much, Lord, for little Piper and the family that you've blessed me with, Lord, and the body of Christ that you've surrounded us with, Lord, that, to hold us accountable. Father, I just pray that we would all be reminded, Lord, that you've paid the price for our souls. You've paid the price for us, Father. We all belong to you. Father, I pray that we would just humble ourselves before you, Lord, and just submit ourselves and our children and our families to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Check, check. Amen. In a moment, we'll close. I'll give a closing prayer representing the congregation and our calling to pray for and support each other in raising children, covenant children for the kingdom. But before I do that, all of you are invited to stick around for some food and some fellowship. You can feel free with limited table space to make use of any of these chairs and that kind of thing. And um, you can try to limit the mess, or Joel might give you a call later. Um, but thanks so much for coming and for joining with us. Let me just close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this weighty moment that you've placed before us today. Father, we think of those significant moments in history when you called your people through memorial to pay attention to what you had done. I pray that this day for the families that stood here would be that, that memorial, Lord Jesus, that you would bring back to their recall so that they might be faithful in raising their children in you. On behalf of the congregation, Lord, we commit ourselves, Lord, in the body of Christ toward our obligation to bear with each other and our failings and our weaknesses, to support and encourage, to serve each other's Christ-likeness, and to be faithful, Lord, within this community, to lift up your holy name and to seek as far as we can to live, Lord, in a way that would benefit your glory as we love each other, even as you have loved us. It's in that name of Jesus we pray. Amen.